Bibles. I hope you brought your Bibles to family time. I hope you bring your Bibles to every service because every service is family time. But um, Sorry, my, my brain is a little fried, so I'm trying to catch up. While you're turning in your Bibles to the text that you don't know yet, uh, Joel, Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who is contributing to my journey toward diabetes. Uh, no, but seriously, thank you for all of the gifts and the candy and uh, the soda and lifesavers and cards and coffee gift cards and uh, gift cards. and uh, so Thank you, Sister Blaze. I did get that. I don't know if you saw my reply. If it yeah, thankfully it's not spam. I got a, an email today with, that Sister Blaze had sent me a gift card, and uh, it was through a website. You could elect to have it automatically deposited into your account. Now that seems a little fishy. Uh, so I just said, well, I'm going to have them mail it to me. And uh, welcome. 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 Uh, So thank you for all of the gifts and goodies. And uh, I'll be stopping at Walmart on the way home to get a sugar tester. And uh, man, it's like literally buckets, buckets full of candy. And uh, somebody gave me a whole package of Oreos. I had to tell my kids, I said, listen, y'all eat some of this. And they're not used to that, so they haven't touched it yet. Because usually it's don't touch it or I'll break your fingers. But uh, that's not the case right now. So thank you to everybody. Thank you. And uh, the milkshake today. Man, I just, there's so much going on. I can't even remember it all. So if I, if I just fall over tonight, first thing you need to do is check my sugar. And uh, I started digging in this morning. Then I remembered that it was my fasting day. So I'm going to fast tomorrow instead of today. So. No milkshakes tomorrow, please. Just wait until Saturday. Jesus' name. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1. And uh, I am very blessed, and I thank you for your tokens of appreciation. Uh, it says, verse 1, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. I'm sorry, I do have it here. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess. You didn't know gloominess was in the Bible, did you? Darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden. Listen to the language here. The land is as a Garden of Eden before them. Behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. Verse 27 and ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, 
and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. We usually stop there, but verse 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Tonight, don't check out on me when you hear what we're going to be talking about, okay? Uh, we are going to be discussing something that is known as urgent. Everybody say urgent. Remember that Wednesday night's family time here. We're going to be hearing some big words. Eschatology. Thank you. So let's put it together. Urgent eschatology. And we're going to be looking at how does God use urgent eschatology. We'll explain it. We'll define it. So don't, don't worry if you've never heard that before. Don't be dismayed if you've not got a doctorate degree in urgent eschatology. I don't either. Uh, but we're going to see how does God use this to further the kingdom. Let's, let's put our Bibles down and let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for this great church. God, I thank you for your great people. God, I pray that you would use us for your glory, that your word would go forth. God, that it, I know it does not return void. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to your word. God, we have not come tonight to hear our own word or to hear our own opinion, but we desire to hear and to be involved in your word and in your kingdom. God, I pray that you would lead us forward. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we give you praise. That's it. Let's clap our hands. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, you can be seated tonight. Urgent eschatology. Just going to check again. Still working. Eschatology, if you were to look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, which you can now find online, thank the Lord. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a set of encyclopedias. We saw some on our bookstore tour the other day, and I looked at those and I thought, man, that would sure look good on a bookshelf, but Lord, thank you for my laptop, and thank you for the internet. And uh, if you were to look up the word eschatology in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you would find it to mean the study of last things. 
Now, we're going to define that a little more clearly biblically here in just a little while. Um, but according to the encyclopedia, it is the study of last things. If we were to look up the word urgent in our friendly Merriam-Webster dictionary, uh, we would find, which I also looked up online, uh, we would find it to mean calling for immediate attention. Immediate attention, not attention tomorrow. That's not urgent. Urgent care is designed for something that needs immediate attention. I know that we have dulled it down to, if I have a hangnail, I know ingrown toenails are, are not fun, but is it urgent? I mean, if you don't get help right now, are you in danger of physical harm? Maybe if you got a sour attitude, but it's really designed for if I go in, if, if I find myself bleeding like a stuck pig and I can't get it to stop, I need urgent care. Accidents, so on and so forth. Urgent, calling for immediate attention. What, what about the last things? Eschatology is really... It has to do with the end times is how we're going to look at things tonight. Uh, what about the end time or end times is urgent? Is urgent. And how has God used urgent eschatology to advance the kingdom? Because that's really what we're in the business about is advancing the kingdom, right? I mean, if not, then, then we ought to just go to my office and eat chocolate. <laughs> really? This boy needs prayer. Jesus. There's a spot for you over there at the altar. Urgent eschatology. We are about advancing the kingdom of God. So, do the end times pertain to the church? And if so, how? How do they, what does it have to do with us? I mean, especially after our teaching last week, Pastor, you said that the church is going to be caught away prior to all of the mess and, and, and all of that. And we looked at that scripturally. And thank you for the questions that I received after that. I've answered some and, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into others. Uh, explaining why we believe the Bible it should be interpreted that way. But wh what does that have to do with us? If we're not going to be here during the most severe seven years known to man, what? what's the deal? Why would you waste our time on a Wednesday night? First of all, yes, they do affect us now. They do affect us now. Salvation is always of utmost importance. What are we being saved from? We are being saved from sin. This is a whole nother hour-long session. But we're being saved from sin and saved from judgment. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So we're being saved from sin, saved to a life of blessing, saved to a life of the kingdom of heaven on earth right now, saved from eternal damnation, saved from judgment. So first and foremost, salvation is always of utmost importance. And since no man knows the day or the time that the Lord will catch the church away, it is imperative for the church to remain vigilant. If we are to read in Matthew 25 and verse 13, we would find it says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, that verse, if we were to just look at it as it is isolated, we were to say, okay, thanks, Jesus, you were telling us that no man knows, you know, 88 reasons why he's coming back in 1988. That was a real book, young people. I know you all weren't born yet because I wasn't born yet. Okay, I didn't, I didn't grace the earth with my presence for a whole other year when that book was, was written. That's why the Lord didn't come back yet. He knew this pipsqueak needed saved. <laughs> and then 89 reasons. Yes, I really am. I was born in 1989. I am that young, Fallon. Thank you, Grandma, for explaining that to her. Mm-hmm. You thought I was just an old fart. Moses did not sign my yearbook. Oh, neither did Methuselah. You have to see his... <laughs> Never mind. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So 89 reasons why he didn't come back in 1988. Uh, and there really are some people that believe that on a certain day, on, on someone's birthday or someone's death date, that they go up to this mountain because they expect the Lord to come back on that day. And when he doesn't this year, they're going to go back next year. And that's, they set their whole worlds by it. Well, if you read the Bible, you'd save yourself a whole lot of travel expense. And who wants to just go out and climb a stinking mountain? You know how much work that is? Take a helicopter, man. So, but this verse, Matthew 25, 13, is sandwiched between two what we'll call the kingdom of heaven shall be likened parables. The first one is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The one afterward, so if we were thinking about this like an Oreo, Matthew 25, 13 is the white stuff, the good stuff in the middle. The cookie on top is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Cookie on the bottom is the parable of the talents. So these parables both give a clear picture that the bridegroom is coming. The master of the house is coming. But none involved in the parables are aware of when he's coming. However, what they do while they wait matters. This is all how urgent eschatology pertains to us as the church. 
The virgins are symbolic of a follower of Christ. The bridegroom represents Christ. The midnight cry is heard. It's meant to signify something that is least expected. In such an hour, he said, as you think not, just when you think he's not coming, he could come. Matthew 24 and verse 44. Therefore, I think we're good, Stratton. I think we're, it's, it, it's keeping up with me. I think I missed this. Well, I didn't. I just missed copy and pasting a verse on the slide. So, my apologies. Matthew 24 and verse 44. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So what I do while I wait matters. While I'm waiting on the bridegroom, while I'm waiting on the master of the house to come, what I do matters. Ask the foolish virgins. The oil in this parable is symbolic of the Holy Ghost. The virgins failed to maintain their relationship with God. They kept themselves separate from the things of the world. Oh man, I might stop right here. They kept themselves clean. They kept themselves separated. They had not been touched by a man. They had not been touched by the things of the world. Yet, they did not have the Holy Ghost in a, in a way that they needed. They had not maintained their relationship with the bridegroom. They failed to maintain their relationship with God. And that ended up allowing themselves, it allowed themselves to fall back into a backslidden state. Even though they were virgins, they still backslid because they did not have enough of the Holy Ghost. Church, let me tell you, you cannot take the Holy Ghost for granted. You cannot take your prayer life for granted. You cannot take reading the Word of God for granted. You could show up to service every time the doors are open, every prayer meeting, and still go to hell. If your lamp is not full of His Spirit, they were not ready when Christ came, and they were shut out. This parable in and of itself shows us that there's no guarantee of eternal security. You were, you're, you're not just once saved and always saved. Once I get in church, I'm golden, man. I mean, if we're going to be real, let's look at the divorce rate. The Bible tells us that the relationship between God and the church is, is likened unto husband and wife. That's, that's why our godly Christian marriages are so important. That because our, our, this is a whole other lesson, but our marriages are to be an example to the world. 
Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Even in this parable, the bridegroom, the groom and the bride. Once people are married, if they don't work at it, they don't just stay legally married. It's another... Maybe that'll be next week. We'll talk about divorce and remarriage. Anyway, once I'm saved, I'm not eternally secure. There's still action needed on my part. Likewise, the master of the house is preparing to go on a trip in the following parable. Not only were the servants responsible for their own well-being, master's not going to be here. He's not going to be looking over my shoulder. I'm still responsible to maintain my faithfulness even when he's not looking over my shoulder. Notice what Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees. They said, Jesus, we pray and we fast all the time. Why don't your disciples fast? Looking down their pointy, elongated, stuck-up noses. Why don't they? Jesus said, you know, why do they need to fast right now? I'm with them. There's coming a day when I'm not going to be here. And that's when they really need to be looking out for their salvation. That's They'll do plenty of fasting once that day comes. Right now, I'm with them and I'm, I'm pushing and poking and prodding and, and breaking off their flesh and all that stuff. But when I leave, when I ascend beyond the place where I'm visible, they're going to have to do some fasting. And so they were responsible for their own well-being while the master was gone. But he also placed in their care talents. A talent is a unit of money with great value. What do we see from the parable? We see that not all servants are expected to produce the same amount of results but they are expected to do their best with what they've been given. Well, if he had given me five talents, I might be able to do something with that. If he'd given me two talents, I could have done this or I could have done that. Well, listen, Joe, you got one. What are you going to do with one? I'm going to do my best with one. I have a responsibility. We're, we're still laying the foundation. This is what the end times has to do with the church i got to do my best with what I've got because God is coming back. And what I do while I wait on Him to return matters. It matters. It matters. So we're going to take a look at what and how God has used uh, references to eschatology to further the kingdom of God. Uh, last week, we discussed dispensations. Pop quiz time! Don't everybody be grabbing your phone looking at Bible studies. Can anyone tell me how many dispensations there are? Just shout it out. Man, thank you. Now, can you name them in order? 
Yeah. Yeah. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and the millennial. So, we are living in the dispensation of grace. Also called the dispensation of the church. And that's the reason I didn't go ahead and flip the slide because I was not going to give you all a way to cheat. So, as you look at the list of seven on the right side of the screen, is there anything that sticks out to you? Is there anything that creates urgency or that is alarming about the location of our dispensation? Brother Stender? Out of seven dispensations, it's number six. If that doesn't make your liver quiver, and, and here's, here's why it may not, okay? Because for the past hundred years, preachers have been saying, God's coming back. God's coming back. Elder, as long as you've been in church, you've been hearing preachers saying, God's coming back soon. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It might be midnight. It might be midday. He's coming. Help is on the way, round in the corner. Thank you for not singing, Isaiah. We appreciate that. So, somebody else tell me, when does the dispensation of grace end? I know it's on the screen. The catching away of the church. Which is going to happen when? We don't know. So that preacher a hundred years ago that was saying, hey, God's coming back soon. God's coming back soon. Well, that was a hundred years ago. Well, let's look back at some at least 6,000 years ago. We're a whole lot closer to the end than we were back then. We're a whole lot closer to the end than we were in innocence or conscience or human government or promise or the law. If that doesn't alarm us, That's scary. That, that in and of itself should bring some urgency. Some calling to immediate attention to being in the church today. I don't know about you, but I, I know I overthink, and there are some days uh, for the chase that I could just about work myself into a frenzy over worrying about where I would be if I hadn't been born in church. I'm one of the, the blessed ones that cut my teeth on an apostolic Pentecostal pew that didn't have to experience what a lot of folks experienced. That I didn't have to have somebody come knock on my door 
somebody dragged me to church. Well, my parents drug me to church, but I didn't have to rely on a church van to come get me. Sister and day, that scares me some days. And I'm on this side of it with the Holy Ghost. But there are days that it literally could make me go crazy about, God, where would I be? Would I even be saved? I don't have to think about that, but I do think about that. Because there might be somebody else out there that's waiting on me to knock on their door. So, we're getting close to the end. This is it, folks. This is it. There is not another dispensation between here and the end. It's it. This is, this is why we're spending family time. Okay? Because we want to know. I'd really like to know how much time we have left. But because I don't have an exact date, I just know there's an urgency to the end times. Uh, and is, is this something that we're just feeling tonight? Is this something that we're just realizing tonight as, as the church? Uh, have, have previous generations felt this? How has it affected the church since the beginning of the church age? How did this affect the church in the book of Acts? If we were to start reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, we would hear they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, mind you, Peter is now standing in our dispensation man that was 2,000 years ago the dispensation of innocence could have lasted as short as seven days I'm talking seven 24-hour periods why do you think it's called the dispensation of grace Real quick, does anybody know what grace is? Unmerited favor? Let me break it down to you real simply. It's when God should rip my head off and doesn't. It's when God should kick me to the curb and he hasn't. Why do you think it was so important that, that God restored David? Because David was not living in the dispensation of grace. David's actions of adultery should have cost him his life. They did not. God reached forward and pulled grace back to David. So grace is God really should have wiped me out. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. But God said, I'm not going to destroy the earth with water like I did then. The second time it's going to be with fire. We got a little taste of that at Sodom and Gomorrah, but it wasn't the whole earth. It was a select group. And now we're seeing the days of Noah. Now we're seeing Sodom and Gomorrah on every street corner, in every city, in every town, in every village. You don't think God's gearing up? God's gearing up.
Peter standing up with the eleven in our dispensation lifted up his voice. Man, even the, the millennial reign is only going to be a thousand years. We've got two already. How long is the grace of God going to last? I, I, you, can you, I'm feeling some urgency tonight. There's some urgency in my spirit that I'm feeling. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Listen up. Listen to me. Stop balancing your checkbook. Stop checking Facebook. Put down your Sudoku. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. They've not been up all night on a bender. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's quoting our opening text. Before them is going to be like the Garden of Eden. Behind them is a wasteland. This is how the end time has affected the church. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. In the last days, that word last is a Greek word, eschatos. It means last or extreme. That is where we get the word eschatology. It means end or last. It's proper use, if we were to look at grammatical things, it means last, final. It is, like I said, the root word of eschatology, the study of last things. This includes future Bible prophecy, the end times, and even life after death. There is finality to what Peter is preaching. Peter's saying this is what Joel was talking about in the last days, in the final days. It doesn't get any better than this. We are, that's, Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law. He said, and on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days. In what days? The final days. Well, how, that was 2,000 years ago. How could Peter be preaching that? I mean, Peter, really? Jesus is coming back soon, 2,000 years later. Here we are. Because it's the last dispensation before he comes to call his church. For he catches us away. On my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is explaining to those that are, are seeing. They're seeing what's being experienced. 
what is going on? These men, they're acting like they're drunk. These women, isn't that Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yeah, she was there. What's going on? Notice, Jesus has waited. Everything, remember that big word from last week, Christocentric? Christocentricity? He came at the appointed time. It was perfect. He died at Passover. Every Passover prior to that pointed toward that moment. It pointed, he was not just, he did not just die when any old sacrifice would have been sacrificed. He died at the time that the Passover lamb would be slain in the temple. The veil was rent. I believe before that priest had a chance to kill that Passover lamb, Jesus died because there was no need for a Passover lamb on that Passover. Jews from all over the world had gathered there in Jerusalem for Passover. It was no coincidence, folks. What is he doing? He's setting up the church. I've got Holy Ghost goosebumps right now. He was setting up the church for maximum occupancy. There's thousands of people in the street from all over the world. Like 14, 16 different languages are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Parthians, Medes, and so on and so forth. And they're all like, what is going on? And Peter said, okay, you guys are Jews. You know the word. This is what Joel was talking about. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, on the day of Pentecost, the day that the dispensation of grace started, he said, this is the last days. He's explaining to them everything that they're seeing, everything that they're, those who are, are experiencing, they're experiencing the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which included the outpouring of the Spirit of God. But for the apostles, they also understood that Joel referred to this occurrence as marking the beginning of the last days. Tonight, we believe this is true because of what we saw on our last slide. The dispensation of grace, the dispensation of the church is the final dispensation before the catching away of the church. That understanding created urgency within the heart of the followers of Jesus. Why do you think Peter stood up and he said, oh man, I'm so thankful I left it all. I'm so thankful I forsook my, my fishing business and I, I, I'm going to be fisher of men. When the crowd asked Peter, they heard Peter's words. And what did they say? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter preached to them what we preach in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. He showed them how to apply faith and obedience and the shedding of blood to their lives and repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. We get the sense of urgency, okay? There's thousands of people there. They're hearing what's going on. They're seeing what's going on. And Peter stands up with the eleven and preaches to them. 
Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. There's urgency. The same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls in the first day of the first church. That, brothers and sisters, is urgency. He preached to them this is the beginning of the end. We are not promised tomorrow. Young people, saints of God, elders, we are not promised tomorrow. We're not going to sit here and say, well, because it's been 2,000 years, I got at least another 50. You're not promised that. I have a customer who is into biopharmaceuticals. There was recent uh, practices put into play, and I was asking his opinion about a certain practice. And he told me, he said, you know, and he's not just a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants biopharm. Like this dude's way up there. He said, you know, Rich, he said, what, what we're seeing is that people who are perfectly healthy are dropping dead at random. And doctors are attributing that to massive cardiac failure. People that, by all other accounts, are absolutely healthy, dropping dead. You are not promised tomorrow. Well, Pastor, are you trying to scare me? Yes, I am. I am trying to scare you. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not afraid of that. If I scare you into heaven, I'll feel a lot better about myself than if I patted your back all the way into hell. You're not promised tomorrow. What if God came back during that one activity? Where would you go? Well, I just thought I'd try it in that space. The Bible says he's coming back in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is when he's calling his church. Do you know what a twinkle is? It's not even a blink. It's the little muscle spasm right before the blink. You cannot repent that fast. You can't speak in tongues that fast. You can't make it back to church that fast. I'm talking about the urgency of eschatology. Peter is standing there and he's saying, men and brethren, this is what you got to do. They that gladly received the word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So what happened to the church? Things for the early church began to take shape as the ministry of those who had walked with Jesus was now in full swing. They're putting into action those things that they had learned, those things that they had experienced, those things that they were now uh, mirroring or replicating from Jesus' ministry. They're putting into action. In Acts chapter 3, 
we find a record of many miracles, signs and wonders, including a lame man at the temple. This miracle of, of the healing of the lame man uh, sparks chaos, anger, outrage. In Acts chapter 4, we find that that miracle has led to Peter and John being arrested for the stir that was created. And just not just because of the stir that was created by the miracle, but also the message that they were preaching. This results in Peter preaching to the council of rulers and elders and scribes. We find in Acts chapter 4 that the church is unified. There seems to have been many people who stayed after Passover and throughout Pentecost, and now, uh, there's now a multitude who have experienced the New Testament Pentecost, including glossolalia, or the speaking in that heavenly language for themselves. Thousands have received the Holy Ghost. Thousands have been baptized. There's so uh, such a great congregation that they're meeting from house to house daily, partaking of the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They're teaching in house to house. They're gathering in Solomon's porch. It's the biggest place in Jerusalem. Uh, these people, if you'll remember from Acts chapter 2, had traveled from all over the world uh, in order to be at Jerusalem for the Passover and then Pentecost. And so the church in Jerusalem, we find in Acts chapter 4, uh, has sold their possessions or they are selling their possessions. They're dividing out the money to everyone who wants to stay and experience the birthing and the growth of the church. They want everybody to be involved. So they're, they're selling what they need to sell. Uh, it would be like you and I selling extra vehicles, you and I selling cars and lands and houses and saying, hey, these folks traveled here from all over the country. Let's make sure that they can stay and have everything that they need. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 4. Everybody that wants to participate in revival, we're going to make a way for you to participate in revival. Acts chapter 5, we find on the coattails of Acts chapter 4, uh, that one couple by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira sell a possession. Uh, it was not the fact that they sold the possession that was a problem. It was not even, believe it or not, it was not even the fact that they gave part of the money. The problem lied with lying. Uh, the, the problem was that they lied about the amount. They said, well, you know, we sold that piece of property for 50,000 uh, talents or 50,000 bucks. Uh, when in reality, in today's real estate market, they sold it for $75,000. We're just using arbitrary numbers tonight. Uh, but the fact was that they gave the 50 saying it was the total amount, when really they kept back part of it for themselves. Their lying to the Holy Ghost cost both of them their lives. Separately, because we were in the dispensation of grace, Ananias comes in first. Ananias lies. They carry him out and bury his body. They call in Sapphira, his wife, and they say, Hey, Safi, Fira. Um, sorry, I almost started singing this song. Uh, is, did you guys, did y'all sell this for such and such? Oh, yeah, Peter, we did. And instantly, I think Peter's blood runs cold. And he said, Sapphira, y'all have agreed together to lie to the Holy Ghost. And the same feet that carried out your husband are going to carry you out. If she had told the truth, God would have spared her. So that's Acts chapter 5. 
Miracles are happening every day. That's the beginning of Acts chapter 5. You find the faith of the people has just skyrocketed. I mean, imagine news like that. Couple drops dead before the apostle Peter. What will happen next? Stay tuned for Jerusalem at noon. The apostles seem to be preaching every day in the temple. Miracles are happening every day. They're carrying people out into the street just so Peter's shadow touching them would, would bring miraculous healings. And it would, literally. Young people, can you guys imagine? I mean, just, Isaac, can you imagine that if I walked over there and my shadow touched that ingrown toenail, it would just be healed? Which way is my shadow? You better go on the other side. No, seriously, go on the other side. Let's try it. In Jesus' name. Is it healed yet? Not yet. But that's the kind of stuff that was happening. They would line the, the streets with their sick and their diseased. And, and the, the faith level was just off the charts. Uh, and then it, it seems like the church has gotten into a rhythm of revival. I mean, every day we're just blowing the doors off this thing. Every day their souls being added, such as should be saved. Uh, it, it gets so intense that the disciples uh, are escorted from prison by an angel. And instead of saying, hey, go down to Waffle House, get yourself some waffles, pancakes, and a cup of black coffee, and go home and sleep it off for a while. Because you've been, you, you had it rough. You know, y'all were in jail. Just take a little vacay. Uh, the angel said, no, y'all go back to preaching now. Escorts them from the prison. They go back to preaching. Uh, and when, when the uh, rulers of the prison come, they say, uh, they're not here. They go tell the scribes and the Pharisees. And they said, well, where are they? They said, well, we actually heard they're down in the temple preaching again. Uh, we find Gamaliel, an elder of utmost piety. He's presented in history as the president of the Sanhedrin, meaning he was also there when Jesus was in the Sanhedrin or before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he warns the councils. He tells the Jewish leaders, he said, hey, we need to be careful how we're treating the, these, these guys because if it's of God, uh, we don't want to be messing with it. And if it's not of God, it'll just fall apart on its own. So let's just beat them and send them home. And that's how Acts chapter 5 ends. Acts chapter 6, we find seven spirit-filled men who were chosen to wait tables and serve the widows and the orphans, the less fortunate. Among them was a man by the name of Stephen, who the Bible records as being full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. We also find among that group of seven, uh, Philip, who the Bible would later call the evangelist, who was also among the seven. Uh, Acts chapter 6 ends with the charging of Stephen with blasphemy and his arrest. Acts chapter 7 records Stephen's speech or message. We're still talking about the urgency, okay? Records Stephen's speech or his message in Acts chapter 7. Would you believe it is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts by a man who was just supposed to be a waiter of tables, a guy who was just supposed to be a servant to widows and orphans? Don't ever disregard how small or insignificant you think your duty is in the kingdom 
In verse 58 of Acts chapter 7, at the stoning and death of Stephen, we are introduced to a young man by the name of Saul. Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Up to this point, things have been pretty consistent for the church in Acts. It's kind of like they're, they're settling into the rhythm of revival. Now, some of us, we would really like to settle into that kind of rhythm of revival. I mean, a beating every now and then, but thousands being saved? I mean, I could deal with that. Jesus. Everything's been pretty consistent. The apostles had experienced arrest and persecution, but with the arrest of Stephen and his subsequent death, things change. Hang on. What starts with the death of Stephen in chapter 7 continues into Acts chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There's a great persecution of the church. Causes church, excuse me, to scatter into Judea and Samaria. You find the apostles, the, the twelve, are the only ones who stay at Jerusalem. Everyone else is going. Everybody else is running. Running from whom? Running from Saul. You see, this spreading out forced them from their comfort zones. And it fulfilled the words of Jesus from Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, which said, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? They're asking eschatological questions. Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're talking about the millennium. But Jesus' response to them is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's the millennial. We'll get there eventually. But what you need to do right now is wait. And what you do while you wait matters. We find the Apostle Paul, the same guy that had consented to Stephen's death in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Is everybody doing okay? Anybody need to stand up and stretch? Everybody else good? Sailor's good. I'm not even asking you. 
1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. He's talking dispensations here. He's talking the plan of God revealing itself throughout time here. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as some of them were. Uh, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day Three and 20,000, that's 23,000 people died in one day. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Notice the language. They tempted Christ. God is one. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them, unto them, in the dispensation of, no, not grace, law. All things, all these things happened to them for examples in the dispensation of law. They are written for our admonition. The Apostle Paul says, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The ends. Now that's not eschatology that he's talking about there as far as the, the Greek word. is It's a different word that he uses. But it means an end, a toll. It's used to speak of consummation. This is the fulfillment of Christ becoming one with the church. And there is, Paul's using it to say there's, this is the end goal. This is the purpose. There is closure here involved with what we're doing. There's closure involved with who we are. So what we do while we wait, well, Paul, that was 2,000 years ago. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the dispensation of grace. This is it. This is it. And so, how did eschatology affect the church in the book of Acts? When they were filled with the Spirit of God, when they heard themselves and others speaking in that heavenly language, it signaled to them, this is the beginning of the end. This is the only chance that man has now. This is it. He said, men and brethren, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. The last days just started. And what did the apostles do? They allowed that knowledge not to stop them. They did not allow that knowledge to make them go run and hide in a closet somewhere, sucking their thumb and waiting on Jesus to come back, waiting on the catching away of the church. They said, if this is truly the end, and we believe it is, we know it is, then I've got to go preach. 
I got to go share this news. I got to go share the good news because there's some really bad news out there. That if you, you're not going to get another chance. But there's good news that overwhelms the bad news. So the church in the book of Acts allowed their understanding of the end times to propel them forward. God used that, used what was spoken by the prophets to push them forward. Now let's fast forward somewhere in the ballpark of 1900 years. It is February 22nd of 1906. Ends coming. Could have been the trumpet. Just a water bottle. Just wipe your wipe your brow. It was close. February 22nd, 1906. William J. Seymour arrives in the city of Los Angeles, California. He's arriving to assume the pastorate of a church uh, that Mrs. Julia Hutchins has started. It was her wish that she would go to Africa as a missionary. And so she reached out to William Seymour, who at that time was with Charles F. Parham uh, in and around Kansas and then Texas. Uh, according to author Cecil Robeck, Jr., who wrote a fantastic book about the birth of the global Pentecostal movement. Uh, this man spent 15 years of his life, 15 years of his life and his education studying the global Pentecostal movement uh, from this happening forward. Uh, according to Cecil Robeck, when William Seymour arrived to Los Angeles in 1906, it was a bustling city of 238,000. It had more than doubled its population in the previous six years, and it was growing by 3,000 residents per month. That's a lot of folks. These were immigrants who were coming from all over the world. Now, let me remind you of how it happened at Pentecost. People came from where? All over the world. The city of Los Angeles is now growing by 3,000 people per month. It's doubled since 1900. As Seymour began preaching about the infilling of the Holy Ghost, he also began preaching that it was necessary for salvation. It was not just an added work of grace. It was necessary for salvation. He also preached that the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost, mind you, this is where the assemblies of God came from. This was where the Methodists came from, the Baptists came from, uh, the Church of God in Christ, the Church of Christ, the Church of God, uh, the United Pentecostal Church, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship, all came from what would take place in Los Angeles in 1906. He starts preaching this message. It's necessary for salvation, just like it was in the book of Acts, the evidence of which is speaking in another language. 
Mrs. Hutchins hears the message. She changes her mind after three or four services. He arrived February 22nd. That was about four days before he was to assume the pastorate. He preached about three or four services, and she literally put chains on the door and locked him out. Literally. He showed up to preach at the church that he was assuming the pastorate of and could not get in the building. Now, he should have known it was coming because he didn't have a key. But anyway, as he's standing there outside this church, it's now the beginning of March. He's standing there, and Mr. and Mrs. Edward and Maddie Lee walk up. They ask him what's going on. He explains. They see the chains on the door. These are sympathizers to his doctrine. They, they want, they're from this church that he was going to assume the pastorate of, but they want to know more. Okay, Seymour, have you been filled with the Holy Ghost yet? No, I haven't, but I want it. He's praying at least five hours a day. At least five hours a day to receive what you and I take for granted. They say, okay, we've got a one-bedroom house, but you can come live with us. So he goes back to Mr. and Mrs. Lee's house. He stays in this small one-bedroom home. Uh, he begins teaching them what he has learned. They begin sharing the Word of God together. Um, they soon begin having prayer meetings. What are they doing? They're seeking the infilling of the Holy Ghost. History tells us, and journals and prayer diaries tell us, that Seymour and Mr. Lee would pray sometimes up to 12 hours. Seymour didn't work a secular job. Mr. Lee would refresh himself and go to work and come home and do it all over again. I don't know when the man slept. But this prayer meeting became recognized. People started hearing about it. Others began to visit. By mid-March, this one-bedroom little house was overflowing. They said, we got to move. So they, they asked one couple who had been bringing their family to this prayer meeting by the name of Richard and Ruth Asbury. They said, hey, your house is a little bit bigger. They said, come on, let's do it. And so they move uh, the prayer meeting approximately two blocks to what was at that time 214. It's now 216 North Bonnie Bray Street. On April 9th, 1906 mind you they've been praying collectively as a body for a month april 9th of 1906 the holy ghost is poured out in a prayer meeting in the asbury's home on north bonnie bray street exponential growth takes place uh, it was in that initial meeting that the woman who would eventually become william seymour's wife uh, had no knowledge of music uh, she is filled with the holy ghost she's sitting on a chair she literally falls off the chair into the floor, speaking in tongues, and they're all like, whoa. They keep praying, and all of a sudden now, everybody but Seymour's got the Holy Ghost. He's preaching and teaching about it, but he hasn't even gotten it yet. And that young lady gets up off the floor and walks over to the piano and sits down on the piano bench and starts playing and singing in tongues. She doesn't know how to play the piano, but the Spirit is guiding her. Um... Everybody around them starts, what's going on? And they start crowding the Bonnie Bray house. 
the Asbury's house on Bonnie Bray Street. You've heard me talk about it before. There's so many people. There's miracles taking place. The front porch of the house collapses under the weight of the people. People are out in the front yard falling off the steps. They literally roll down the hill, lost in the spirit, and that's where the term holy rollers came from. Literally, that's where it came from. They're rolling down the hill. They haven't stopped worshiping. That's what happens when the Holy Ghost begins to move. You don't, you don't care. You don't, it, it's of so much more importance than my reputation or my feelings. The streets filled. And they're saying, okay, Asbury's, thanks, but your house isn't big enough. So they moved to 312 Azusa Street. It's an old stable. We're really not even preaching about, uh, we're teaching about everything that happened at Azusa Street. That's like six weeks worth of class. Um, but revival continues, okay? There's, there's somewhere in the ballpark of like 1,500 people that are showing up at the Azusa Street Mission every day for church. It starts out with like 300, then it grows to like 1,500. There is, the only furniture is, is crates with, uh, with red oak planks on top of them. It had been a stable. There's flies. It's Los Angeles in the early uh, summer. By this point, there's flies. There's still the stench of manure. It's not pretty, but the Holy Ghost is moving. So what happens next would completely propel the revival into a worldwide frenzy. To quote Cecil Robeck, the city's attention had shifted toward what was taking place at Azusa Street. There's police officers being posted there trying to keep order. Neighbors are complaining. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, the city's attention would soon forcibly be focused some 350 miles to the north of Los Angeles. At 5.13 a.m. on April 18th, 1906, the ground began to shake, and the city of San Francisco crumpled and burst into flames. For the next four days, tremors would rock the city. Buildings collapsed. Fires burned out of control. And upwards of 3,000 people died. Until April 18th, such disaster and calamity, Robeck says, had seemed very distant. On August 27th of 1883, the volcano uh, Krakatoa had blown its top with a destructive force that had killed over 100,000 people. On April 9th, 1906, imagine that, the same day the Holy Ghost just poured out at the Bonnie Bray Street house, only a week before the San Francisco earthquake, Mount Vesuvius had erupted, causing extensive damage. And earthquakes of the magnitude of San Francisco's would soon shake Valparaiso, Chile, producing a tidal wave akin to the tidal wave that flooded southern Asia that we have experienced in 2004. Those disasters had been distant, but now the San Francisco earthquake was in their backyard, 350 miles away. 
as we understand, after disaster, after natural disaster, people want answers. Why did this earthquake happen? Many times those who raise these questions turn to their spiritual leaders for answers. The earthquake that took place in San Francisco, and San Francisco was the epicenter. The earthquake was felt from southern Oregon to south of Los Angeles and inland as far as central Nevada. It's now believed that around 3,000 people died in the earthquake. And over the next several weeks, many pastors in Los Angeles claimed to see the hand of God in the disaster. One of the leaders at Azusa Street Mission, Frank Bartleman, began to write tracts calling people to get right with God. Why, why would something like a natural disaster trigger eschatological thought? Because the words of Jesus, Matthew 24, verses 5 through 7, say, For many shall come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse or different places. Jesus was likely saying that the closer the end became, the more frequent these things would happen. We hear people talking about climate change. We hear people talking about hurricanes. We hear people talking about earthquakes, tidal waves, and famines, and all kinds of issues that plague the globe. It should not surprise us. Disturb us? Possibly. Surprise us? No. Because disasters have a way of causing people to refocus their priorities. I, I ran out of time, but I, I truly intended to look up and see what the attendance rates were in churches after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack on New York City. We hear about terrorist attacks all the time. We hear about suicide bombers. We hear about civil wars in these faraway countries. But when it happened on American soil, every one of us who were alive then felt vulnerable. Every one of us felt like climbing the wall and biting the ceiling and getting on a plane or getting on a boat and going to defend our country. It has a way of refocusing people's intentions. All of a sudden, things that used to matter don't matter. You know, that word pestilence has to do with diseases pandemics it ought not to surprise us what are we saying pastor we're saying that the end is coming the end is here we could say 
There is no other dispensation. There is nothing else. There's, there's not going to be a buffer where if you don't make it right now, when God calls his church, that it's, it's just going to be okay. Jesus is telling his disciples, see that you be not troubled. These things have to happen. But I have placed the church here for such a time as this. He said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, I'm almost done. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city. This is Matthew chapter 10, not towards the end of Matthew chapter 24 that we read in 25. Go ye not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was preaching, The end is coming. But then he told them, Heal the sick. Don't just preach, The end is coming. Don't just preach, If you don't get right, You're going to burn in hell. But heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received and freely give. He's telling them what to do while they wait on the kingdom of heaven to arrive. Now, we understand that he's saying, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, because he was giving the Jews an opportunity to accept him as the Messiah. But the Jews would reject it as a nation which would open the doors to the Samaritans. We find that in Acts chapter 8 with, with Philip, the evangelist, the waiter of tables. And then to the Gentiles. The kingdom of heaven was coming to earth in the form of first the earthly ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. Then the ministry of the church, the dispensation of the church, the dispensation of of grace the kingdom of heaven is coming the kingdom of heaven is on the earth right now because you and I are filled with his spirit when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost we don't have to wait until we get to heaven but we are living in part in the earnest of our inheritance the Bible calls it right now so we don't have to be down in the dumps we don't have to be underwhelmed or overwhelmed. But he's saying the earthly ministry of the Messiah is here. The ministry of the church is at hand. And lastly, he was speaking about the millennial kingdom. And so we can ask ourselves tonight, men and brethren, what can we do? What can we do? Folks, tonight... Our day and our age is not going to get any better. It's really not. We think it's crazy because people don't know their own gender. It's just getting started. They're already allowing children to identify as animals. There are schools that are putting in litter boxes for children. I'm serious. Because that child identifies as a cat. No. 
but it's not going to get any better. The same spirits, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's what all sin can be traced back to, are going to be increasingly active. No politician is going to fix it. I don't care what color of flag they fly. I don't care whether it's red or blue or rainbow stripe or black with the skull and crossbones. I don't. Truly, they don't have the answers, but the church has the answer. But Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, but this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Listen to the description. This is Paul writing to Timothy. There is nothing new under the sun. It's just manifesting itself in different ways now. It's revealing itself as well. Perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. All the parents said hallelujah. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. It is natural for men to be attracted to women and for women to be attracted to men. That is natural. But in the last days, they are without natural affection. Truce breakers. There used to be a day you could do business just by shaking somebody's hand and giving your word. But in the last days, there's not going to be many people left like that. They're going to be truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Don't be surprised that they don't like you. They don't like what you stand for. They don't like what you stand against. They're going to call you a bigot. They're going to call you all sorts of ugly names. Don't let that change who you are. Don't let it make you back down, but don't let it make you get hard. Traitors. Heady. High-minded. We don't have time to go through all of these tonight and define what they are, but that'd be a good homework assignment. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. I was floored. It happened when I was a kid. There was a church, and I, don't, I truly don't even remember where it was at. They put in a drive through So if you were going to the lake, you could drive through the drive through and they would hand you out a recording of the pastor's sermon. So you could listen to it on your boat. Now we call it a podcast. We'll let that sleeping dog lie. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Those foolish virgins had a form of godliness. But denying the power thereof. They didn't have the goods 
maintained. From such turn away. So we turn away from that. Men and brethren, what can we do? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That word and is the word chi that connects all of those together. They are not separate. They are not distinct. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He could have been talking about the globe, and he could have been talking about dispensations. I'm with you all the way to the end. Don't you ever forget that I am with you. When you feel that nudge to invite somebody to church, don't you think that you're just on your own. I'm with you. I am with you. Let's stand tonight. I've got four more pages of notes, but we're not going there. We need to feel the urgency of the end times. We could very easily get wrapped up in pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, I don't know trib. Well, yes, I know what you're saying. In the grand scheme of things, does it matter? It only matters when it comes to rightly dividing the word. And that's pretty important. Because if I misinterpret that, it could lead me wrong all down the line. But we just have to stay ready. That's what Elder was saying. I knew that's what he was saying. And I knew you were with me. There's an urgency. Pastor, it's getting bad. And you better believe it's gearing up. He could come back tonight. I'm not just saying that as cliche. And it ought to be enough that you're not going to be crunching bottles, distracted during altar call. There's urgency in being in the kingdom of God. It was a command for them to go ye therefore and teach all nations. Brother Wilson, and, and this was my four pages of notes, and I'm just going to condense it down into a couple of sentences and not do it justice, and we might talk about it another time. We're blessed. The highest mandate given to man is found in Genesis 12. The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. You can explicate this on your own. That means unpack it, unravel it, search it out. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The very essence of God's call is away from our own country, that's Egypt, that's the world, 
from our own kindred, that sinful carnality, from our Father's house. I'm leaving the house of Satan. I'm leaving darkness. I'm moving into his marvelous light, into a land that God will show me. And when I'm there, God's going to make of me a great nation. God made Abraham a great nation. Through him, all the families of the earth were blessed. How? Through the Messiah. You and I are blessed, folks. There's, there's three, three layers of blessing, but we're not going to get into that tonight. But let me tell you, when we get an understanding of how blessed we are, and we get an understanding of how close we are to the end, it becomes a lot bigger than just Saturday morning outreach. Revival becomes bigger than just a series of special services like Webster defines it. Revival becomes a lifestyle. Evangelism becomes a lifestyle. It becomes the master's plan engaged in my world, engaged in my life. It becomes I'm blessed and I want to share that with somebody. I'm so excited to be living with God and for God that i got to share it with somebody. It's more than just knocking doors and passing out flyers. It's, it's more than hitting windshields and Walmarts and parking lots. And I, I, I get all of that stuff. I understand all that. But we, we, it, it becomes a, a matter of I'm blessed. I want you to see that I'm blessed. And I want you to be blessed as well. And you don't have a lot of time to waste because you're, you're not promised your next breath. Today, that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. When the Ethiopian eunuch looked at Philip, he said, there's water. What doth hinder me? Philip didn't ask him, hey, there's water. What's stopping you? The Ethiopian eunuch's asking himself, what's stopping me? Nothing. Let's go. They both went down into the water together in Acts chapter 8, in the ending of Acts chapter 8, and they baptizes him, and when the Ethiopian eunuch comes up, Philip's gone. Boom. Out of there. Folks, we need to feel the urgency. Innocence is gone. God just dealing with the conscience is gone. God just dealing with human government is gone. The promise has been fulfilled. The dispensation of law has been fulfilled. This is that. How much time do we have? It's already been 2,000 years. It could be tonight. Are you ready? Have you won as many souls as you want to win? I know a pastor who's very well known. He was very sick. This has been years ago. Very sick. He prayed. He said, God, I want to go to heaven. But I don't want to go right now. Would you give me some time so I can raise up 20 more young men? to be preachers of the gospel. That man's still alive today. I don't believe he's just sitting around. I think he's developing some young men. What if he's on 17? 
What if he's on 18? What if he's on 19? What if the 20th just preached his first message tonight? How much time do we have left? I don't know. But I've not done everything that I want to do for the kingdom of God. What I do while I wait matters. Let's lift our hands. Come on, let's lift our voices.